We were supposed to have cast off the shackles of EU rules around farming and fishing. Brexit was sold as a sea of opportunity. And yet, tons of British meat have been left rotting at European ports, while Scottish fishers have had to make a 72-hour round trip to land their catch in Denmark. This has ended up a lot worse than what we expected. It's got to the stage that some of the transport companies are actually refusing to take the stuff because there's not much hold up at the hubs. You're gambling with a lorry load, and a lorry load of fish is approximately £50,000. We don't know if we're going to get it to our customer. We don't know when we're going to get it to our customer. We have lost hundreds of hours, dozens of days already with our, with our trucks that are waiting unnecessarily. The PM has said that these are just teething problems. But are they really? What's it been like for UK fishers and farmers since we left the EU? And is there a chance we can use Brexit to make our food system better? The result of Brexit did not come as a surprise to me, um, but the level of deception was unbelievable. You've been kicked long enough that you sort of hoped that something better would come and it didn't and it won't. We've lost all the prizes, the quota, the control over the 12 mile limit, the idea of us being a true coastal state, but we've also got all the negative side as well. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking what's Brexit done to farming and fishing? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very excited to be joined down the line by Chris Williams, Associate Fellow at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Chris. Hi, Isha. Thanks for being with us. So should we dive in then? Yeah, let's go for it. If you'll pardon the pun. Oh, God, there's going to be a lot of them, I think. You get a lot of mileage out of fish puns. That's it. It's very popular on uh, social media. <laughs> on on the social media. The social media. All the social media. Right. So first question then. Uh, it's not going to be a news flash that COVID has affected, obviously, every industry in the UK and how we grow and fish our food is no exception. So let's start by talking about how the pandemic has affected the fishing industry. So, Chris, what's been going on? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. The pandemic has caused all kinds of disruption at various stages in the supply chain across our kind of entire food system. The impact of that obviously is people's jobs and livelihoods and income, but it's also compounded by this health crisis and the risk to kind of food workers as well. And then obviously the wider economic impact. I mean, seafood itself is one of the most traded commodities globally. It's obviously also to a large extent perishable, which is what makes this such a kind of tricky issue. And it's also a very highly nutritious source of food. So when there's a kind of bottleneck and a kind of reduction in output, if you like, of seafood, it is, as with almost all problems, the poorest people that rely on it most who will sort of suffer disproportionately. So, um, yeah, COVID has really had a big impact on the fishing industry in the UK, mainly because where people tend to eat seafood or at least be more adventurous in the seafood they eat is out in restaurants, uh, more so than cooking it at home. And obviously they've been sharp, the same for pubs, you know, scampi and chips or fish and chips in the pub. And then also the fact that really the vast majority of what we catch in UK waters is actually exported and then mainly to Europe. That's obviously also been impacted both by COVID and then also more recently by Brexit. So, yeah, lockdowns have obviously had a really big impact because it's changing the way that people consume. But it's also impacted, therefore, you know, the amount of fishing that's actually undertaken, because if there's no market for what you're doing, it doesn't just change overnight in terms of, you know, people's tastes and demand. So if you're used to selling to somewhere that then all of a sudden stops wanting to 
actually buy that seafood, then you can't just sort of replace that with local markets. So yeah, it's been 2020 at least is an extremely tough year for the fishing industry for a, a multitude of different reasons. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. There's so many things that you don't think about to such a level of depth. But as you say, there's a lot of elements to it. So what about farming then? How has that been affected by the pandemic? Well, farming, I think the food industry in general has been affected in those same different ways. So it's impacted how people consume, therefore what is produced and what is sold and caused kind of delays and bottlenecks. And for a lot of these kind of things like meat production, for example, the size of animal that you're growing is sort of very, very specific. And if you have to keep, say, a pig or something, for an extra three months, you have to keep feeding it and they obviously then keep growing and they then stop being the same kind of value as a commodity. So all of these kind of delays around Brexit and COVID have certainly impacted the meat production industry to a large extent. But there's there's some really sort of obscure changes as well. I was watching something yesterday about someone who imports bees for honey production and food pollination. He had spent £300,000 on bees that he was going to basically sell and then for a variety of different reasons bureaucratic ones he couldn't and again like you say there's some things that are so essential for us to be able to eat but we as consumers don't actually see them and aren't aware of them and i think one of the real things that covid has done is just highlighted how much we rely on these key workers whether it's the people transporting our food whether it's the people in the processing factories who are packaging and preparing our food or whether it's the people growing or catching uh, the food I mean, they are key workers and without them, we'd be well and truly stuffed because we've got a tiny percentage of the population, you know, feeding tens of millions of people. Okay, so are these 2020 problems then in terms of Brexit and COVID? Are these new to the fishing and farming industries or were these sectors struggling before 2020? I mean, there's, in the fishing in particular, there's certainly been issues. A historic overfishing uh, has caused problems that had quite a long impact and quite a legacy. And just when that sort of started to turn a corner and things started to improve there was obviously the referendum and certain parts of the fishing industry felt like there was a lot to gain from that and they really championed brexit and were very uh upbeat i think actually for most of 2020 about this sea of opportunity that you mentioned in the introduction uh which has obviously not come to fruition as it's emerged to actually just be a sea of risk and uncertainty we were sort of making that point three years ago as well because People imagine the fishing industry as one sort of homogenous entity that's all the same, but it's actually extremely diverse in terms of the types of boats, the types of fishing, the species they fish for, the markets that they sell to, and also this sort of big issue around ownership. So a tiny minority of the fishing industry actually own the fishing quota, which is you know should be a, a public resource, and they've stand to gain a lot more because of this privatized system. And a lot of that is at the expense of the smaller producers and the people that don't own quota. And incidentally, a large percentage of the ones that don't own quota have been fishing for other species that are mainly eaten in the EU. And so they've sort of had this treble whammy where they were never going to benefit from Brexit. They've sort of really suffered because of the closure of restaurants and pubs and the EU markets. And then they've also now lost out because of the sort of failure to deliver on some of the Brexit promises. So they sort of got the worst of all worlds. Their markets have dried up. They've got tricky, expensive and bureaucratic trade, a loss of markets. And then on top of that, they're sort of still dealing with this issue of sort of they can't really diversify and do anything else because they don't get access to quota because they they weren't in the favoured group decades ago that uh, sort of had a seat at the table and was able to sort of dip into that pot. So let's, yeah, let's stick with fishing and Brexit for a second, because there's, there's a few more areas it would be useful to have a bit more 
colouring. So even though fishing only makes up a small part of the UK economy, as you've kind of alluded to, it, it was a really big sticking point during Brexit negotiations. And that is something that has always confounded me. So could you shed a bit of light on why fishing was such a big thing during the Brexit negotiation? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the argument we've always been making is that fishing only employs sort of 12,000 people. So that's like half as many as Debenhams employs globally. And as an industry is less than uh, half a percent of GDP. And this was the argument we were always making. And it was so surprising to see how uh, an industry that is so small and sort of comparable to other things like pepper pig merchandise or the locks and hinges industry or sit down lawnmowers. There's all these different comparisons to basically show how small and insignificant fishing is as an economic sector. But then at the same time, it's just been elevated to this poster child of Brexit, really. I think the reason for that fundamentally is emotional. It taps into a sort of romantic notion of Britain as an island nation with a proud maritime history and this sort of idea of this like, you know, frontier mindset almost heading across the horizon. And I think the simple reality is that while we were saying this three years ago, that the industry is so small, how could the government prioritise that in Brexit over all these other sectors that we're hearing about every day, like what it's done to the music industry, for example, or for other sectors of the economy. I mean, the fact that the government didn't deliver at all on any of the Brexit promises kind of shows that they realised all along that it's a small sector that basically is dispensable to some extent. I think that the reason that it became such a big deal in Brexit is one of the few areas where the UK really felt like we held all the cards. And that was what we were certainly told by the government in the negotiations. And the reason for that is obvious is that we're an island. We're surrounded by water. We've got the richest fishing grounds and lots of Dutch and French and Belgian and Spanish fishing effort takes place in what would be our exclusive economic zone. So we felt like that was something that would give us leverage over the EU. And the argument that was made was, yes, but we're also entirely reliant on the EU as our target market. That's basically where close to 80%, well, I think it's actually 60% of our landings overall are basically sold to the EU. So trade was a really, really big deal. And the UK was saying, well, we're going to separate access to the fishing resource from trade. And the EU was saying you can't separate the two. And as has emerged, indeed, you can't separate the two. There's also other aspects to it, like in the processing of seafood. Nearly half of the people who work in seafood processing in the UK are actually EU citizens as well. So it's very complex and interwoven and interlinked. And it was sort of presented as a standalone win and, you know, something that we could just do in this sort of Britannia rules the waves kind of way. And uh, history has proven that that actually wasn't possible. Yeah. I mean, in the run up to the EU referendum, the media definitely portrayed the sector as being firmly pro-Brexit. First of all, was that actually the case? And then just a bit more would be useful on what you've alluded to around this kind of sea of opportunity versus what actually has been delivered. Yeah. So the sea of opportunity narrative was very popular with those parts of the fishing industry, especially up in Scotland, who own a lot of quota and felt like if they could limit EU access to our waters and take some of that quota back, that they would do very, very well out of it financially. At the same time in Scotland, there's uh, the majority of boats are actually engaged in a different kind of fishing that's mainly for uh, langoustine, which is like a, a small lobster-like shellfish, which goes pretty much the demand for that was all over France and Spain. And they really were concerned. And none of the fishermen that we interviewed up there two or three years ago, we actually made a film about it as well. It's on the NEF website. None of them voted for Brexit and none of them felt excited about the sea of opportunity because they were very clear that they're catching a perishable product for which there just isn't that much demand in the UK compared to um, on the continent. 
So it was convenient to say that the entire fishing industry voted for Brexit. It's certainly not true, but I think different promises were made and they have different levels of significance for different parts of the industry. So there's issues around access and like, can you restrict European boats coming in? Then there's issues around trade and like where the actual seafood ends up. And then there's also this issue about territorial waters, which is the 12 miles from each country's coastline that fishermen, especially in the southeast of England, were told, this is a red line for the government. There is no way we're going to continue to let EU vessels fish between six and 12 miles from our coast. Uh, and I think that, I mean, the fishermen I work with down in, in Eastbourne, they thought that, that was guaranteed. They were like, no, no, we've been assured by the minister. We are definitely not going to continue giving them access to that. So that was a real hammer blow, I think, because for the guys that don't have the quota and have sort of not been favoured by the system that the UK government has developed, they really thought that this sort of six to 12 mile limit was going to be something that would really change their fate and would just remove a lot of EU fishing effort from that area and let those stocks recover and just give them a great opportunity to sort of, um, yeah, recoup some of the opportunities that they've lost over the years. But um, yeah, I think they were very, very depressed and angry when that emerged to have not been secured uh, on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I want to move on to farming in a sec, but just if there were any kind of final things you could share on that piece, particularly around the kind of fishers' experiences. I know you spoke to some for a Radio 4 documentary, and then there was also the Scottish fish, Scottish fishers. That is so hard to say. Oh my uh-huh. goodness. Scottish fishers. Wow. Protesting the Brexit carnage outside number 10. So yeah, just any kind of final points on how people are feeling about all of this right now? Yeah. So, I mean, the promises were pretty clear. The first promise was that we would move from this system called relative stability, where each EU member state gets a stable share of each of these fish stocks every year, to something called zonal attachment, which is basically about the life history of where these different species and stocks uh, sort of spend their time, if you like, over the course of their lives. That has not been delivered, nowhere near zonal attachment. Fishing industry has promised thousands more tons of quota. That also hasn't happened. They were promised we would take back control, and that basically meant excluding or setting the terms for EU vessels accessing our 200-mile exclusive economic zone, which has also not happened. We were told that the 12 miles was a red line. That hasn't happened. We were told that there would also be tariff-free access and easy trade to the EU. And the tariff-free access bit is true, and that's obviously part of the deal, and that's how trade and access to the fishery have sort of been linked. But we were also told that trade would be easy and seamless and would continue almost like it was. And the reason these Scottish fishermen were down in Westminster is because that emerged to not be true at all. And the bureaucracy and paperwork and delays involved in trying to get their catches to the continent meant that they were just not able to do it. Uh, So a large proportion of what they were trying to export just wouldn't go through. So um, in the round, it's been a, a massive disappointment, even for people that didn't sort of think it was possible in the first place. I think they've been surprised at just how bad it's turned out. I mean, the deal that's been agreed lasts for the next five and a half years, after which there's prospect to renegotiate. But if the UK does anything that disadvantages the EU fishing fleets, the um, EU can take retaliatory measures and introduce tariffs. So I really think... Um, yeah, it's unlikely to change in five and a half years either. Also, there have been quota gains. So the um, UK government has secured an increase in some stocks, but uh, the way it's been presented sort of at a political level has been, let's just say, they've made the most out of how you can use statistics. And I think 
in reality, in terms of what's going to change for fishermen in terms of how much they're allowed to catch or how much they're going to earn or their sort of access, I don't think much is going to change. And I think lots of the percentages we've heard about are quite meaningless. Like in Scotland, quite a few of the quota increases are for species that are actually only bycatches in fisheries. So some of the access to cod, for example, you know, if your quota is going from one ton to two tons, you can say that's a 100% increase. And that sounds really, really good, but it's not going to make any difference to anybody's livelihood because the stocks are already so low that they're only caught as a bycatch. So I think politicians have been uh, very creative with the way that they've used statistics. And there was a very good thing on BBC More or Less where they showed that what was presented as basically we are increasing our catches to two thirds is actually closer to 8%. So I think the way the sort of rhetoric and the big statements are being presented in the media versus reality are just really quite far apart. And I think now is really a time for a bit of honest discussion about what has actually emerged and the way some of these gains are going to be divided out because there has been an increase in quota. 41% of that is for one single mackerel stock. So, you know, that's only of interest to certain parts of the fishing industry and only accessible for certain parts of the industry as well. And also around 20% of the gains are actually going to go to foreign companies that are fishing UK quota. So they own vessels that have a UK flag. But I mean, the beneficiaries really of that catch are in Holland or Spain. And I think there hasn't been any kind of honest discussion from the government about what exactly that means. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it certainly seems to me like so much of this is going under the radar. I had no idea personally about a lot of it. And it, it, yeah, I mean, it absolutely sounds like there needs to be a bit of a awareness raising campaign around it. I want to talk about farming now and looking at particularly farming subsidies. So the way subsidies are distributed in the EU is obviously not very popular. Could you give us a quick overview of how they work before we dive in? Yeah, so in basic terms, there's direct and indirect subsidies for both fishing and farming. Indirect subsidies are things like not paying duty on fossil fuels, which obviously encourages you to use more of them and more sort of chemical pesticides and fertilizers that are derivatives of the sort of chemical industry, if you like. But in terms of direct subsidies, there's been a, a basic farm payment at EU level, which effectively pays people for earning land, which I think everybody can agree is, is a pretty perverse way to use public money. So the UK have been very explicit that they don't want to pay people just to own land anymore. And they want to use this principle of public money for public goods. And they're trying to introduce that over the next three to four years in what's called the ELM scheme, like the Environmental Land Management Scheme, where they will basically reward practices that are sort of good for restoring soil health or absorbing carbon or planting trees or giving people access to nature and that kind of thing. Okay, Brill, thank you. So how does the government want to change farming subsidies after Brexit? And will that be better for farmers? Will it affect big and small farmers differently? What are we dealing with? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the ambition is to basically transform the farming industry, but without sort of pulling the rug out from under them, because I think lots of farms in the UK have become very reliant on this subsidy and on the basic farm payment. And if you just remove that tomorrow or on, on January 1st, lots of these farms would not really survive. So I think they're taking a sort of slower phased approach over the next three to four years where the amount you're paid for the land you're farming reduces. And then at the same time, you'll be eligible for more subsidy payments if you sort of 
plant hedgerows and include like cover crops uh, over the winter or if you can demonstrate other kind of environmental practices that the government is trying to incentivize through this use of public money. Okay. All right. So a few more specific questions here that I've got for you, a little bit of a grilling, but um, I'm sure you can handle it. So the wildlife trusts are planning to take the government to court over its decision to allow farmers to use something called, I can't say that. I can't say that. Neo, ne- what is it, Chris? Neonicotinoid. Yes. That is so outrageous that that's been put in. No, I'm, I'm going to make a complaint that I've been expected to say that. You can say neonics for short. Okay. That's what the cool people say. All right. Yeah. It sounds like some kind of strange branch of the Republican Party. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, can you explain what they are? That'd be great. And why people are objecting to them. And I'm sure that there's some bigger implications about what this tells us. Yeah, it's a really good question. The nicotinoids are chemicals that have a extremely negative impact on pollinating insects that we rely on to pollinate our crops and therefore to feed us. I was really actually shocked by this because there's been so much rhetoric around we're leaving the disastrous common fisheries policy and the common agricultural policy because we're pursuing this kind of green Brexit. And then one of the first kind of uh, actions that's taken is to basically permit something which is banned in the EU, which is demonstrably extremely environmentally harmful and dangerous. So certainly uh, rhetoric and action are sort of pretty out of kilter there. The Wildlife Trust are right to challenge the government. I mean, this is a chemical that is basically very harmful to bees and other pollinating insects and certainly doesn't match the kind of ambition to transform farming into something that is more kind of in harmony with nature and more sustainable in a kind of genuine sense. Doesn't sound like we're moving in the right direction, Chris. No. Filling me with hope, you know. No, I I, I agree. So Brexit has obviously been really difficult for lots of fishers and farmers for the reasons that you've laid out, but also so many others. But let's look to the future now. So is there a possibility for us, do you think, Chris, to use this moment to actually improve the environmental impacts of our food sector? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, the really interesting thing is after a massive shock and a crisis, there's usually... Uh, an opportunity for sort of reappraisal and, and sort of realizing how vulnerable different parts of sort of society and the economy are. And I think um, this particular shock has really highlighted lots of issues in our food system. I think it's certainly something that's not unique to the UK. So I think recently, like the UN, for example, recommended that one of the outcomes of this kind of COVID pandemic should be to use it as an opportunity to transform the food system to be more green, uh, inclusive and resilient is what the UN is focusing on. I totally agree with all of those principles. Obviously, the seafood system itself also doesn't work for all people. It falls short on some environmental criteria. There's big issues around social equity, especially in the UK with the quota system. And that's something that the Fisheries Act doesn't address. It specifically entrenches actually the privatised quota system that's caused so many social problems for coastal communities. And also on the the bigger level, there's this issue of sort of nutritional security. And that obviously depends sort of which part of the world that you're in. But I mean, I think for the world's poorest, it's absolutely essential that they have access to that resource and food source. I think there's no way we can really return to business as usual. And this is another area where we have to build back better and come up with a system that is basically fairer and is basically more resilient in terms of you know, the climate emergency, these sort of problems are going to, they're not going to go away. So we need to build in resilience into the system of how we consume, how we produce, and also how we trade. And I think a lot of that is just about the scale. So it's about trying to develop healthy, 
local supply chains where the producers are rewarded for the difficult work that they do and where consumers are ending up with sort of climate-friendly, high-nutritious food that's also affordable because you can't be in a situation where you know, the only things that are produced kind of in the right way and as nutritional as possible can only be bought by, you know, certain parts of society. You've got to consider that kind of equity and fairness. And I think there's great opportunities because, I mean, in seafood, for example, because people aren't eating out in restaurants and going to pubs, what they've started doing is uh, ordering seafood in box schemes and things like that. And that's been very successful and it's been good for uh, small-scale fishermen that have sort of tapped into that because they're getting way higher prices. People are also becoming way more aware of what's seasonally available and not just buying the same big five species that people in the UK have got very used to. Just to be clear, that's sort of cod, haddock, warm water prawns, farmed salmon and tuna, of which really it's only haddock that was really sort of caught in UK waters in any kind of amount that would sort of satisfy demand. All the cod was coming in from sort of Iceland and Norway. Salmon is obviously farmed, it's not even caught wild, and then the prawns and tuna are imported. So I think if people's tastes are changing as a result of lockdown and the way that they're consuming and buying seafood is changing, it also means that there's an opportunity to talk to them about sustainability and about their local fishing fleets and the kind of gears that are used and the seasonal changes. And I think the seafood industry has tried a lot over the last sort of decade to try and get celebrity chefs and others to get people to expand their horizons a bit when it comes to seafood. And eat, I guess, in a more continental way where we eat a much broader range of different fish and shellfish. And it's funny that in a way, the negative consequences of COVID and of Brexit are kind of making that change accelerate. And those businesses that are able to capitalize on that and actually provide you know, fresh local seafoods to people's front door um, have actually done very well. And those businesses are actually thriving. It's the ones that are still reliant on sort of commodity markets and exports that are really suffering and i think there's a lesson there about just the way we structure our kind of food businesses and also our local economies i mean you can there's a win-win here i think and it's a shame that it's had to be highlighted through a, a pandemic with so many horrific impacts for so many people but i think something good can come of it as people basically learn more about how food is produced who produces it and that we basically use an opportunity to drive up environmental standards and labor standards throughout the supply chain you can't have one without the other, right? Sustainability has a, a human component as much as it does an environmental one. And I think we really need to move towards strong local food systems that are also supporting like high welfare, low chemical inputs uh, in farming, and are also supporting you know fishermen that are fishing in a responsible, low impact way and not sort of uh, overfishing, really. Brilliant. So there is some hope. I feel a bit more hopeful. And also I feel a bit <laughs> like I need to question some of my own uh, habits there. When you definitely mentioned the top five, I was like, oh God, that's my fridge. Oh no. I'm going to expand my horizons, Chris. I'm going to do it. So finally then, I know you've been working with some fishers in Eastbourne who are trying to secure their future. Could you kind of finish off by telling us a little bit about what they've been doing? Yes. Thanks for an opportunity to talk about that. So yeah, I've been working with um, mainly a couple of fishermen down in Eastbourne for the last seven years um, originally, NEF was committed to helping small-scale fishermen access EU subsidies because we realised that they didn't really have the kind of capacity or the sort of office staff or ability to kind of tap into these funds. So we saw that the sort of public money was also being kind of hoovered up by the bigger parts of the industry, and we wanted to change that. So I helped them develop a funding bid for a fishing key. 
where they'd been working in Sovereign Harbour. And the idea really was that they could build like a processing unit and a fishmonger's and that they could then add value to their own catch and kind of control the means of production rather than being reliant on wholesalers and sort of shift from being uh, price takers to price makers is, is the term that I like to use. And yeah, so we were successful six years ago in getting that funding. It was £1.1 million. But then unfortunately, a series of uh, sort of events beyond our control took over, like the land that they were on was owned by Carillion. Carillion went bust. Then the land that had been promised to them was sold in a fire sale. Then they had to negotiate lease terms with the new owners of the land. That took another year. In that time, the contractor that they would uh, appointed to do the work went bust. So they had to go to their second contractor. The prices in the meantime had gone up because it had been nearly three years since we'd written the first bid. So we had to reapply and get an uplift there. And then just when things were starting to go well, then COVID hit. Obviously, that impacted the construction industry and the seafood industry, as we've discussed at length and delayed things further. But um, things are actually going well now. And by the end of March or early April, this fishing key is going to open. And we found out a couple of weeks ago that we're actually also another bid that we wrote for the second phase of that development, which is like a visitor and heritage center and a place for them to sort of repair their fishing gear is also going to be funded by the local enterprise partnership, which is just phenomenal. I mean, the idea really is that we can use fishing as a kind of a catalyst for the local economy to provide good jobs, you know, providing the best possible price to fishers and the most nutritious, healthy and sort of sustainable seafood to the people that live in that area. So, yeah, it's been a, a long, hard slog and at various different times it's looked like it was falling through. But working with people in the local authority and working with people in the local residents association and a huge number of people over those years, we've managed to kind of pull together and not give up and actually managed to follow through on that. So I look forward to uh, welcoming you down there, maybe to do a podcast on the road once it's open. Oh, that would be amazing. And I mean, massive congratulations. It sounds like a really heavy lift, but absolutely worth it. And hopefully something that might even provide a blueprint for other industries too, you know. That's certainly what we're hoping, yeah. Brilliant. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But if you can't get enough of the Brexit chat, lovely listeners, make sure you revisit our Brexit episode from the last series with Marley Morris of IPPR. But for now, Chris Williams, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work or or hear more of these stories about what you've been doing on the ground, where can they go? What should they read? Yeah, well, if you go on the New Economics website and just click the fisheries button, you'll see uh, various pieces of work that I've been involved in. And if you want to go on the social media, then uh, I'm at Marine Economics uh, on Twitter. And also fish puns, apparently. Is that where they find them, the social media? Yeah, I mean, I'm always reluctant to do it, but I somehow get roped into them. (laughs) okay Uh, well I'll ask the producers to uh, include some great fish puns in the show notes Uh, okay that is it for today's weekly economics podcast we're going to let you go but if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at Neff on Twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith stay safe real He's a fish. Thank you. Brill, <laughs> Brill is a fish. Brill is a delicious fish. Oh, my God. Becky, leave that in. That's gold. Oh, yeah, there we go. Got there in the end. I was like, I'm going to make loads of fish puns, then I couldn't think of any.